Today's reading is from Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. The Apostle Paul writes, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's, person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. Well, it's great to be back with you once again for the second instalment in our journey through the early chapters of the book of Romans. And today we're going to be focusing on the verses that follow on from Romans chapter 2 and verse 17. Well, they said it was safe. Safe as houses, they said. Absolutely unsinkable, they said. In fact, so confident were they that they only provided lifeboats for half the passengers. Well, it was a waste of space, they said. But then, as you all know, that ship to which I'm referring, the Titanic, on the 15th of April, 1912, on her maiden voyage across the Atlantic, struck an iceberg at 22 knots and sank with the loss of 1,513 people. What's the moral of that story? Well, the moral is you should never be too sure, especially when lives are at risk. You see, the fact that we feel safe doesn't necessarily mean that we are safe. And if that was true of journeys by ship across the Atlantic, it is even more true of that spiritual journey which we all must make from this world to the next. And that at least is what I think that the Apostle Paul wants to teach us from this next passage that we're looking at today in the book of Romans. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you will know that here in these verses, the Apostle Paul is spelling out some pretty bad news. 
which is a necessary prelude to the very good news that he will come to when he gets to Romans chapter 3. So in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul starts off by telling us that God is very angry with this world, and that because our standards are so woefully below his own, humanity, that is, men and women in general, are going to reap an appalling harvest of judgment. That, in essence, was Romans chapter 1. Then at the beginning of Romans chapter 2, the verses we passed over, the Apostle Paul moves things on one stage further to try to deflate the complacency of those who want to protest their immunity from this judgment on the grounds of their moral respectability. No, says the Apostle Paul, God isn't fooled by any mask of good manners he may choose to wear. See, he's going to judge the secrets of our hearts, not just our public image. And so we come today to this latter half of Romans chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul files one final and devastating salvo. Still, of course, in this general direction, but this time at a rather more narrow target. Because now he's not just considering those who simply regard themselves as morally respectable, but a subgroup within that category. That is, those whose self-righteousness is based fairly and squarely on their religion. So look with me at chapter 2 and verse 17, and I think you'll see what I mean. Verse 17. So if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relationship to God, he begins... In other words, he's no longer talking to the good humanist or the good moral pagan that he was talking to in the early part of the chapter. Now, now he's specifically addressing himself to those who, like us perhaps, take pride in their Christian heritage and rely in some way on God's law. But what about them? If moral respectability can't deliver us from God's judgment... Can a Bible? Now, by that I mean, can can having a Bible under your arm or in your pocket or on your phone or on your bookshelf or open in front of you, can that, do you think, do what moral respectability can't? Well, the Jewish people then certainly believed it could, at least in Paul's day. And I fear that many who call themselves Christian today think similarly about themselves. So, will I go to heaven? Well, of course I will. I go regularly to a Christian church. I've been christened, confirmed, baptised. I mean, for goodness sake, despite my busy diary, I'm here now at chapel. And let's face it, everyone who's a regular at chapel goes to heaven, don't they? Well, the Apostle Paul says, no. See, according to the Apostle Paul, religiosity can no more save us their moral respectability. And the people who think that it can are the spiritual equivalents of passengers on the Titanic. So their religion makes them feel safe, but it's a false security. And he gives us two reasons in our passage why this is so. Let let me point them out to you. Firstly, the first reason why religion on its own will never be enough, and it is this. You see, everybody knows that religious people are the most notorious hypocrites of all. Yes, everybody knows that we, religious people, 
can be the most notorious hypocrites of all. Look, look with me at verse 21 and following. So verse 21, you then who teach others, will you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, but, but do you commit adultery? Verse 23, you brag about the law, but do you dishonour God by breaking it? Verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, of course, if it were any other than the Apostle Paul writing here, we might be justified in accusing him of anti-Semitic prejudice. But Rabbi Paul, Hebrew of the Hebrews, can hardly wear that charge. No, of all people, clearly he knew what he was talking about when he spoke of the Jewish people then in that way. Nevertheless, the right response for us as we read these comments addressed to them is to ask ourselves if, that if the Apostle Paul were talking to us, to us Christians, whether he would not say exactly the same. We who attend not the synagogue, but the church. For we call ourselves Christians. We claim that we are, as it says in verse 19, a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness. We are quite sure that we have a message that the world needs to hear. And because of that, of course, just like it says in verse 20, we, we tend to support Sunday school to teach children and mission agencies to enlighten the unevangelized. Yet what is the world's opinion of us? You see, all too often I fear that they are right when they scorn our invitation saying, me go to church, but the church is full of hypocrites. And if we're honest, well, it is, isn't it? You know, when ministers like me complain that people won't come to church, we say, oh, it, it, it must be the secularisation of our age. Well, must it? Or could it be also that the man or woman in the street has no desire to identify with, with all that they have learned by experience to associate with churchianity. See, it is with us as it was with the Jews in Paul's day, verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles or in the world because of our failure to provide a credible witness to the truth of the Bible by our lives. You know, I, I remember growing up as a child, wide-eyed, thinking that everyone who went to church carrying their own Bible must be a real Christian. But sadly, it didn't take me too long as an adult to realise that that isn't necessarily so. See, there is no hypocrisy more beguiling, is there, than religious hypocrisy. You know, that nominal Christianity that surrounds itself with, with all kinds of Christian meetings and that likes to litter its homes with service sheets and motto texts that delights to go to, to hear all the well-known speakers that prays eloquently at prayer breakfasts and prayer meetings and perhaps even gives a large cheque to church treasurers. In short, that gives every outward indication of devoutness. And yet, whose heart, yes, whose heart in reality is a cesspool and for whom all that religiosity is just a well-rehearsed sham. 
one of the great reformers of old, so incisively writes. He says, They set the sign of the cross over their outer door, but sacrificed to their guts and their groin in their inner closets. Now don't tell me that it is not so, for I confess to you that I too can see the signs of it present even in my own life. And so the Apostle Paul says to us, as John the Baptist said to the people of his day, bring forth fruit ripe for repentance. Look at verse 27. So those who are physically uncircumcised, unbelievers in other words, but who have a moral sense, they will condemn you who've got a Bible and who wear a cross around your neck but have no moral sense. See, it's changed lives that God is interested in. That reveals reality and not religiosity. So you, Mr and Mrs Londoner, with your middle-class morality and your greed and your materialism, do you think that you're going to church on its own will save you? Well, think again, it will not. And you, Mr and Mrs Sophisticated, with your cynicism and your self-righteousness, do you think identifying yourself with a Christian movement or cause on its own will save you? It will not. And you, Mr. Church of England minister preaching in chapel today, do you think that just because you preach to others, you will be saved? No, says the Apostle Paul, you will not. Rather, verse 27, those who do not go to church at all will condemn you for the way in which their lives expose the hypocrisy of our own. So don't tell me that you're a church member or a church regular or, or a church elder even. So was Judas, or the equivalent. See, says the Apostle Paul, religion on its own is never enough. And here's the first reason it is never enough. Because everyone knows that religious people are the most notorious hypocrites of all. Yes, we, religious people, are actually the most notorious hypocrites of all. Then secondly... Religious formality without a Christ-centred spirituality is useless. That's the second reason. Let me say it again. Religious formality without a Christ-centred and personal spirituality is useless. Look with me at verse 25. Verse 25, the Apostle Paul writes, Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. See, many Jews in the Apostle Paul's day believed that the very act of circumcision was sufficient to guarantee them eternal life. See, God had sworn to Abraham that no circumcised person would ever go to hell. That's what some of their rabbis taught. And notice how the Apostle Paul here insists that it is not so. So circumcision, he says, is an external sign of an inner spiritual attitude. And in the absence of that inner reality, well, it's nothing more than an empty ritual, which does you no good at all. So he says, verse 28, look at verse 28. He is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision external and physical. I mean, just think how that must have shaken the assurance of some of the Jews to the quick to which the Apostle Paul was writing. And it ought to do the same to us. 
But for if the Apostle Paul were here speaking to us Christians and not to those Jews, I think he would say precisely the same. For a person is not a real Christian who is just one outwardly, and nor is our rite of initiation, baptism, like circumcision, just outward and physical. No, a person is only a true Christian if they are one inwardly, and true baptism, if it means anything, is a baptism of the heart. You see, I fear that there are are many who call themselves Christian today, who put the same superstitious trust in their churchgoing, or their baptism, or their strict adherence to certain religious festivals and practices, as the Jews did in their circumcision. So they think that because they're baptised, or or whatever it is, that these things somehow mechanically confer God's grace upon them. Well, says the Apostle Paul, don't be misled, it is not so. No, religious formality can no more make a person truly a Christian than having a prayer book and a gold ring can make someone truly married. No, there must be a personal union with Christ. Or there is nothing of true religion in us at all. See, mere religious formality without a personal and true spirituality, that is, a real knowledge and love of Jesus, is meaningless. Indeed, just like many marriages who put on an outward show to conceal an inner poverty, so many so-called Christians put on an outward show for God to conceal an inner coldness. See, there's nothing there at all. And I tell you, or rather, the Apostle Paul tells us in these verses that such formality is of no use at all. Indeed, it's worse than useless because it breeds the complacency of the Titanic. So Jesus, you remember, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 29, told a story, didn't he, to bring that very point home to roost. The story of those two men who went up to the temple, both going to say their prayers. And the one man we learn was a Pharisee, and his prayer, do you remember, well, it was just a catalogue of self-congratulating virtues. So I thank you, God, for the good religious person that I am. I'm not like that fellow over there. He never goes to chapel. What's he doing in chapel here today? No, I'm a good, regular church attender. I give my tithes and say my prayers, and I do everything a good religious person should. But Jesus said to that man, that though he went home feeling good, though he went home feeling religious, worst of all, though he went home feeling safe, the reality was that in spite of all his unquestionable religious conduct and conformity, his soul was in serious spiritual jeopardy. Let me tell you something. Did you know that on July the 8th, 1741, A man stood up in a pulpit in Enfield, Connecticut. Jonathan Edwards, not the former British triple jumper, but one of the mightiest intellects that I think the Americans have ever produced. His congregation were respectable New England churchgoers, the grandchildren of the Pilgrim Fathers, no less, a more orthodox churchy community you could not find anywhere. And yet, do you know how Edwards then began his sermon? Do you know what he called it? He called it sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
But you know, that sermon back then precipitated a revival. Hundreds of people, the history books tell us, were wailing by the end of it. Edwards, we're told, could hardly make himself heard. Those religious people, you see, found themselves condemned by his words. And you know, if we would know and experience revival and true religion in our lives, then I suspect that our attitude must likewise be the same. I tell you again, or rather the Apostle Paul tells us, most solemnly from this passage here in Romans chapter 2, that just because we meet here every Tuesday within these beautiful, ornate and consecrated walls, with the book of God open in our hands, that on its own means nothing at all, unless it is accompanied by a spiritual response in our souls. The story is told of a bishop, Bishop Taylor Smith, who was preaching once in a large cathedral, and this is what he said. He said, my dear people, do not substitute anything from the new birth. Oh, you may be a member of a church, but that is not the new birth. You may be an archdeacon in this cathedral and not be born again. You may even be a bishop like myself and not be born again. Oh, how I wish our bishops would preach more like that today. Anyway, two days later, Bishop Taylor Smith received this letter. It was a letter from the Archdeacon of that cathedral. And this is what it said. It said, My dear Bishop, you have found me out. I have been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I have never known anything of the joy and this living relationship with God that Christians so often speak. I did not know what the matter was with me was until your sermon pointed it out. Indeed, I realised in that moment that I had never known anything of the new birth of which the Bible speaks. Well, I wonder if that could possibly be true of any of us here this lunchtime. So maybe you come from a Christian family. So we're members of a Christian church. Maybe we go to a weekly Bible study or a monthly prayer breakfast. So we try to live a, a good and godly life. But do you really think that those things alone can immunise you or me from what the Apostle Paul has to say in these chapters of Romans about the right judgement of God that is coming? Of course it can't. See, formal religion is useless unless it is accompanied by a spiritual reality and a love for Jesus in our hearts. You see, the question is, on what have you actually based your hope? Is it based on what you do or on what Jesus has done for you? And so I beg you this lunchtime, just as Jonathan Edwards did to his congregation and the Apostle Paul does to his readers here, don't let the reality of your admirable religious practice lull you into a false sense of security. Don't be satisfied with anything less than a a personal interest and a true, ongoing, personal encounter with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. And if you do have an ongoing living relationship with Jesus Christ, as I know that most of you have, then rejoice in that relationship, revel in it, and make sure that you are resting on God's grace to you and in that alone. See, most of us, if we're not careful, so quickly become work-based people, relying on that to earn enough spiritual brownie points to warrant our place in heaven. 
rather than being love-based people whose works and religious practice is actually only the result or the expression of the love that we have as the people that God's grace has made us. Let me pray together. Our loving Father, we know that however good things might look on the outside, we still find ourselves gratifying our fallen, sinful nature with all its cravings, desires and thoughts. And yet because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we also know that there is no need for any of us to despair. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our saviour. And may our lives from this day forth always be simply an expression of our love for him. And we ask this in our Saviour's precious name. Amen.